we've come to rely much more on things like ultrasound, MRIs, which are terrifically informative, no question. But I worry about the loss of clinical, physical examination skills. We used to have patients walk out of our clinics with paper bags filled with splints, wheelchairs, canes. We don't use any of those anymore, fortunately. The uh, outlook is so much better. That was Dr. Ron Laxer and Dr. Ross Petty talking about the history and future of pediatric rheumatology in Canada. They are our guests on this episode of Around the Room, the Canadian Rheumatology Association podcast. Hi, I'm your host, Daniel Ennis. Today, our guests are two of the world's most distinguished experts in the area of pediatric rheumatology. Hi, I'm Dr. Ron Laxer from the Hospital for Sick Children. I'm a staff rheumatologist and a professor of pediatrics and medicine at the University of Toronto. Together with Dr. Earl Silverman, he founded the Pediatric Rheumatology and Training Programs at Sick Kids Hospital in Toronto. He is now considered one of the best in the world. People come from all over the world to do training with him and observerships there. We're also joined by Dr. Ross Petty. Hello, I'm uh, Dr. Ross Petty. I'm a pediatric rheumatologist at British Columbia's Children's Hospital and a professor emeritus at the University of British Columbia. He established Canada's first formal pediatric rheumatology patient care research and teaching program at the University of Manitoba. He literally wrote the textbook on pediatric rheumatology and was awarded the Order of Canada for his work in that field. As of last year, both Ron and Ross have been recognized as masters of the American College of Rheumatology. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thanks, Dan. So I want to start off getting a little bit of background on how you guys even got into rheumatology. Ron, maybe we'll start with you. What drew you to rheumatology? When I was a first-year resident, I was assigned a patient who had unexplained fever and severe joint pain. And we thought he had systemic juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. We did not have a pediatric rheumatologist at the Montreal Children's Hospital where I was training. And my plan was to become that pediatric rheumatologist. I decided I was going to do some training, thought I would train for a year, and then go back to Montreal, where the model was you could do a subspecialty and also general pediatrics. That's what I had planned to do. But I quickly learned that uh, I could not do only one year of training. And so I continued for a a three-year fellowship and then came to Toronto. There's a whole story behind that as well. We can talk about that afterwards or we can talk about them now if you'd like. Yeah, go ahead. I'm interested to hear. I can't wait. uh, I'm a Montrealer. And the last place any Montrealer (laughs) ever wanted to be was in Toronto. (laughs) And when I was nearing the second year of my fellowship and decided I have to find a job, I wrote about 75 letters to pretty much every pediatric program I could find, except Toronto. (laughs) And soon after that, a letter came from Dr. Erwin Gelfand, who was the head of immunology at SickKids, to Dr. Rob Hill, who was chair of the Department of Pediatrics at, at UBC and also did some pediatric rheumatology, asking for new trainees because he wanted to develop a program of rheumatology under immunology. uh, Dr. Hill sent that to Ross. Ross sent that to me. And because I had only two potential job offers of those 75 letters, one in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and one in Stony Brook, New York, where the department had 12 pediatricians, I decided I would take a look at Toronto. And the rest is history. (laughs) That's great. Ross, how about you? Uh, What actually drew you to pediatric rheumatology? An accident. I was skiing at Lake Louise, and I broke my leg. 
three months before I was scheduled to go to Ann Arbor to do the rest of my pediatrics training. And I thought, what am I going to do? I don't know how I'm going to be able to function. This is a big medical center, huge department of pediatrics, big hospital. Am I going to be able to do it? So I thought, well, I'll ask for an elective the first month. And they said, yes, of course you can take an elective. What would you like to do? And there was a division of pediatric rehabilitation. And I thought, if I'm going to get sympathy anywhere, it will be in pediatric rehabilitation. So that's what I signed on for and began that on July 1st, 1967. The first patient I saw was a child, adolescent girl with, with uh, severe polyarticular juvenile rheumatoid arthritis, as we called it then. I hadn't a clue what I was doing. Came out into the hallway, was met by Dr. Jim Cassidy, who was a lifelong friend and mentor, who said, you know, can I check you out? And I said, sure. We spent the afternoon, the entire afternoon, on this one patient. And I was overwhelmed by, by uh, Dr. Cassidy's erudition and insight into this disease. I went home and said to my wife, this is what I want to do. was not my intention, but it was an accident. And it was a very fortunate one for me. I think a stroke of good luck for all of us, actually. <laughs> Can you tell me a little bit about how your training looked at that time, and maybe we'll talk about some of the differences in training that we have today. Well, my training was in the uh, Division of Pediatric Rehabilitation uh, at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. There were two members of the division. One, an adult rheumatologist, Jim Cassidy, who did this sort of because he was really interested in it. And another was uh, Dr. Nita Sullivan, who was a rehab pediatrician, rehab doctor. And um, the training was sort of invented on the run. You just did what you thought was useful. And they were very uh, supportive, although skeptical, that I would ever get a job as a pediatric rheumatologist. Uh, but nonetheless, indulged my interest and uh, taught me an enormous amount. I also had enough time during those two years to spend time in the lab, which uh, for me was a very formative experience and uh, led to further training. But uh, it was really not made up on the, on the run, but it was sort of you took what you could take and what would look now like a very inadequate training program because the numbers would be smaller and there was no formal approval of the program as there wasn't anywhere in the United States or Canada, uh, any formal training programs in Pegram. So it was sort of make it up as you go along. Ron, did you have a similar experience that make it up as you go along, well, choose your own ending? It, it worked so well for Ross in Ann Arbor that he set up the same program at UBC. <laughs> That's right. So I think the lack of structure probably is um, the, the best term to describe the major difference between then and now. And, that's not such a bad thing because you really were able to focus on things that you were really interested in. And I was in a one-person program. It's only Dr. Petty. I got to follow him around five days a week and really learn from the master. Can you tell me what that was like working with each other? Uh, I don't think we can say that on the record. <laughs> um, anybody who knows Ross knows what a, a pleasure and a privilege it is to spend any time with him. And to be able to do that for five days a week and, and to watch a, a brilliant clinician in action day to day, and you, you couldn't come away without being inspired 
by looking after these patients and trying to do that. Now, I, I know he's sitting right here, but can you tell me what actually made him such a masterful clinician? Well, I think there's some innate skills. I think there's a personality which goes along with that. Humility. And people who write about excellence in medicine talk about humility as one of the most important characteristics. Willing to say that you don't know certain things and making sure that you find out to the best of your abilities. And he... Um, as a tremendously curious mind, which made him successful in the lab, and he was able to then bring basic science questions to patients and try to figure out how to do things better. Ross, what was it like working with Ron? Well, I, when I came back to Canada in 1976 to Winnipeg, I had the good fortune to work with two colleagues who became pediatric rheumatologists, Dr. Alan Rosenberg who's in Saskatoon, and Dr. Kim Owen, who is retired and is in uh, Toronto. And then I moved to Vancouver, and lo and behold, Dr. Ron Laxer. I mean, all I can say is, how can you go wrong if you work with people like that? They're, they were all eager, highly intelligent, principled, curious, humble, all of those good things. And uh, it, it has and subsequently, I've had many, many uh, absolutely wonderful experiences with our fellows um, because of the same characteristics. But to start my Canadian experience with Kim, Alan, and Ron was unbelievably good luck. So now, now you're both famous rheumatologists, uh, but I, I understand that you worked with a number of famous rheumatologists throughout uh your training. Can you tell me about some of your mentors in rheumatology? Well, my chief mentor was Jim Cassidy, who was, uh, as I say, he was an adult rheumatologist in Ann Arbor. I thought he was much older than I because he was so wise. He wasn't much older than I was, but he was so wise. Um, and he, he was a meticulous clinician. Uh, no detail was too small to be considered. And it contrasted with Dr. Danita Sullivan, who was kind of an uh, intuitive clinician. She could tell you what was wrong, but when you'd ask her why, she would say, well, I have to think about that. But she would always be right. She was so such a good clinician. So I had the benefit of both of those kinds of approaches to instruction. And that, uh, that was uh, extremely important to me. The next big influence, I guess, was um, Mike Stewart, who was a young whippersnapper at the Institute of Child Health in London, Great Ormond Street Children's Hospital. And I went there because I had to get out of the U.S. because of my visa. I was expired and I you know, had to leave. Where do I go? So I thought, well, let's go to England. Uh, and by good luck, I wound up working at uh, Institute of Child Health and Mike needed a fellow. So I became his fellow. And I learned a lot of basic science immunology, but I also learned a lot about uh, living in a foreign country and uh, had enormous support from him. So those would be my three most important mentors, no doubt. But again, uh, the um, learning never ends because you keep confronting new things new situations and new questions brought about, uh, asked by new fellows. 
So the pleasure of working with uh, fellows is just beyond compare as far as I'm concerned. And Ron, how about you? Who have been some mentors throughout your career? Well, I've already mentioned Dr. Petty. When I got to Vancouver and needed a place to live, I ended up renting the house that Alan Rosenberg lived in. And as I was looking around, I saw all these papers scattered on an entity, I guess, for diseases related to enthesitis. And that ended up becoming a paper, <clears throat> sorry, published in 1982 by Alan and Ross on, I think it was called a, ser- a syndrome of seronegative enthesopathy and arthropathy. You know, we have a workshop today on enthesitis. It's become a huge topic in the literature. Alan and Ross were the first people to really emphasize that issue in rheumatology in general, how important enthesopathies were for ankylosing spondylitis. And I could not believe that Alan, as a fellow, was able to have that impact. Then he went to Saskatoon and built this provincial program, which is the admiration of everybody. So Alan is a huge hero of mine. And at the risk of leaving people out, I'm going to single out some people that I work with in Toronto, who uh, you already mentioned, Dr. Silverman, probably the pediatric rheumatology world's greatest iconoclast. (laughs) We've been uh, very close friends and colleagues for 35 years, and I admire the way Earl works. Rafael Schneider, who last night received a Distinguished Educator Award, who was a fellow of mine. And uh, Brian Feldman, who's also uh, a brilliant clinician researcher, I admire, in addition to so many others. You've both mentioned uh, people that you've worked with who were wise at an, an early stage in their career. How do we actually achieve early wisdom? That seemed always to me like something that it just naturally comes with age, but maybe not. Well, I read somewhere that wisdom is the sort of intersection between knowledge and experience. So I think some people are just wise. I work with a couple of them, right? Well, I work with several of them right now, but two in particular stand out to be exceptionally insightful in spite of not being that many years in the discipline. I listen to telephone conversations they have with parents or children or teenagers, and I think, you yeah, know, that's really, I wish I could put it that way. Uh, this, uh, this wisdom, I guess it's there. Maybe their parents endow them with it, or it's in their genes, or it's just an, an approach. And I think that one of the major components of wisdom, which may be easier in the early uh, experience is the um, acknowledgement that you don't know everything and that there's always something new that you haven't seen and that you will do your best to figure it out, but not uh, sort of assuming that just because you now have all these letters after your name and a job that you really know everything. So I think the ability to step away from your expertise uh, and acknowledge that there's a terrific amount that you don't know. And if you only, if you're wise enough just to listen and inquire, you'll become wiser even. Ron, uh, can you tell me a little bit about how you have seen the landscape of rheumatology change from when you began your career to now? I'll focus on the pediatric part. 
when I started, there was one training program in Canada. I think there were five or six programs in the U.S. Now, fortunately, we have uh, we have 80 pediatric rheumatologists who are members of the CRA. As we discussed, the training programs have expanded dramatically. And, and probably most important, uh, of course, are the therapeutics that we've seen. Ross and I were speaking before the podcast started about the way we used to look after patients and the way we do now. Rehabilitation, while, of course, critically important, is totally different than it was. We used to have patients walk out of our clinics with paper bags filled with splints. They would have daytime splints and nighttime splints for their wrists, and they would have long uh, leg, leg splints, wheelchairs, canes. We don't use any of those anymore, fortunately. The uh, outlook is so much better, and now we're paying a lot more attention to things we didn't before, like quality of life and pain and all the patient-reported outcomes that we never even thought about when I was training. That's, that's really interesting. And Ross, how about you? What's evolved from your perspective? It's, al- it's almost, uh, it's difficult to compare because the, the discipline now is so unlike it was when I started in 1967. Um, in every way, the, the breadth of the discipline is, is different. Uh, for example, when, when I was a young fellow, we saw kids with what we then called juvenile rheumatoid arthritis, JRA, JRA. And then the next patient would be JRA. And then the next three patients would be JRA. It was very arthritis-focused. The occasional child with lupus or dermatomyositis was seen, but by and large, this was a discipline involving uh, children with chronic arthritis. And as Ron said, rehabilitation was a huge factor because what we had to treat them with were... Aspirin, can you believe it? Um, gold, can you believe it? Penicillamine, even worse. Plaquenil, uh, hydroxychloroquine, and maybe a little sulfasalazine, and of course, prednisone. But that was it. And you, you had no um, expectation that you were going to, to cure the disease or even control it completely. That was just, you did your best but you knew that the outcome was going to be a chronic, often debilitating disease. So we had no illusions of being able to put this uh, to rest. It was an ongoing problem. Now, that's not the question. I mean, now control we expect. We don't always get it, but we expect to get it. Um, Cure is something we actually think about now because the... uh, advances in therapeutics like biologics make you think that, gosh, this disease is gone. Again, that's not by any means always the case. And now I think with the advances in things like genomics, um, you can actually think about prevention. It's not here, of course, but I think we can think about the possibility. So the, the, the field is just not comparable. And as Ron said, we used to have kids in wheelchairs on crutches with splints uh, or orthopedic procedures being done. Um, I don't think we have one child. I know we have no children in wheelchairs in Vancouver. We may have one on crutches temporarily, but it's just a different world. And the outcome is vastly better, not just for arthritis, but for other connective tissue diseases as well. And then we've added on this other category that Ron knows far more about than I do, 
called autoinflammatory diseases. And uh, they're very interesting uh, genetically determined disorders, which are surprisingly frequent. I think when we started thinking about this, we thought these are rarities, but they're quite common. And that's sort of a new, new field, actually, within pediatric rheumatology. With Ross, we wrote a paper, I think, in 1986 about injecting joints in children. Just imagine, that hadn't been done before. And that kind of was another revolution. But imagine thinking that that's revolutionary the way we practice today. And also wanted to point out the incredible advances both in immunology, immunology and genetics, and how that's totally changed what we do with our patients. Even the training programs, we're, we're thinking now that even our train in a lane like rheumatology and immunology and hematology, I think you're going to have a lot of crossover training so that the principles that you learn in the immunology training program need to be applied to our patients. In fact, my practice is much less JIA now, and it's much more other quote-unquote rare diseases than, uh, as Ross said, we even knew existed. We knew about familiar Mediterranean fever, and that was it. And we said, okay, maybe it's familiar Mediterranean fever. Give the child some colchicine. If it works, that's the diagnosis. If it doesn't work, it's going to go away. So uh, Ross actually alluded to your recently published mm-hmm. textbook of autoinflammation. Um, that's still in the mail. I haven't, I haven't read it yet. So, you, you have both written important works on pediatric rheumatology and autoinflammation. Can you guys... Tell me a little bit about the process of actually start to finish writing an entire textbook. Uh, we've just run with me one of the six editors of the eighth edition of the textbook of pediatric rheumatology, originally written by Jim Cassidy, and I've forgotten what year, um, but now uh, broadened to include six editors and about a hundred authors and a thousand headaches, but it's done. It's at the publishers. We're now waiting for page proofs. Um, To begin with, uh, it it was very easy because Jim Cassidy and I co-edited it and, you know, we just lived down the hall from each other and we wrote the chapters, almost all of them. And uh, of course, we agreed with ourselves and didn't have to have any editing. But as the the book uh, succeeded and uh, required more editions, more authors were needed. It was recognized that, you know, we didn't know everything. We needed to call in experts who, in various fields. And so now, um, with the eighth edition, it's taken a year and a bit, many deadlines which were ignored. And a receptive publisher, Elsevier, who's published the book forever, it's a very um, labor-intensive process, I can tell you. And I think we both breathe a sigh of relief when the final chapter was submitted after pleading and, and uh, cajoling. And understandably, I mean, I, I fell through this whole process. I'm unemployed. I can do what I like. And everybody else has got a job, and they have to fit this into their job. So I have great uh, sense of gratitude to all of the authors uh, and to the editors who managed to make this happen. Uh, so that that's different than Ron's book because... Um, starting a fresh, a new field, uh, and a new subject. Well, I, I know it's a labor of love for Ross, because I think 
I think it's the fourth edition that I'm on. Maybe it's the third, maybe it's the fourth. But after each one, Ross says, okay, this is the last one. <laughs> this is the last This is the last time I'm doing it. And he keeps coming back for more I think because he's so good at it. The auto-inflammation book uh, arose as a collaboration initially between Phil Hashkis from Israel and myself. We both had some interactions with Springer Publishing Group, and they always ask any ideas about books. And Phil and I both went independently to them and said, I think the field is mature enough now that we need to make a compendium of all the clinical diseases and the basic science for people who can then reference the, the different diseases. Turned out we approached them independently at a meeting, and then we were talking to one another and said, Eureka, let's work together. And neither of us are basic scientists. So we asked around, and Anna Simon from the Netherlands, who is probably the leading person on the disease metabolic kinase deficiency, hyper-IGD syndrome, agreed to collaborate. Then we made a list of all the key individuals who are known to be experts in the different diseases and the basic science mechanisms with the publishers approached them. And most people were very keen to participate in a new first edition textbook. We're very proud of the product. That's excellent. I'm really looking forward to, to reading it. And at the rate of progress in that field, when is the second edition coming in? Don't even, don't even <laughs> ask. You, you talked about all the pains associated with the book. They were similar with this one. Pains, but, but I, I should also agree with you. Pleasures, it's a sense of great satisfaction. And the conception. Yeah, that's good fun. Do you guys think that there are any lost arts of rheumatology that uh, you know newer trainees like myself or um, even younger that we're missing that we should bring back? I don't want to sound like an old fogey, but that's okay. I, I'm inviting I am, it. But yeah. People know I am. So <laughs> all this, all this great hair. I'm not sure that we spend enough time on the clinical aspects of the specialty. We talked earlier about structure of the training programs, and there's so many things that you have to deliver in a program which are peripheral to direct patient care, hands-on patient care. I didn't have uh, most of those in the program, and I'm sure that there are gaps, but I got to see every complicated patient and so many other types of patients who came through the clinic that I think the trainees just don't get to do anymore. I don't think they get the appropriate follow-up of patients. So I think direct, hands-on patient care, you know, it's the initial visit with the patient and family and the initial diagnostic workup is not the really hard part. The really hard part is the third, fourth, fifth, sixth visit when things aren't going the way the books say they're supposed to go. And that's the art that you have to learn. You can quote the papers about what you should do, but when you're facing the patient and the family, that's the real challenge. And I'm not sure that the trainees today get enough of that. What do you think is the barrier to that? Well, part of it is all the other things that have to be done. Uh, I'm definitely not against um, limiting hours of of, uh, training. When people are on call, they have to go home the next day. But we got to see uh, patients after we were on call, and we got to follow those patients. I think there's always been, at least when I was in training, there was always a a push and pull and tension between your... um, your other activities, like your academic half day and the research expectations, if you have them in your program or the other components of your training that you're supposed to be participating in. And what what most trainees really want, which is to see patients and to learn how to manage them. Um, so there's this time crunch where you have, uh, you have requirements of a program, you have requirements of clinical teaching, and it can be hard to marry those things within 
the hours of a normal day. So I, I think I, I hear that as well. Russ, how about you? Any, any lost arts that we should bring back? I think if, if there's one lost sort of specific art, I worry about the loss of clinical physical examination skills because they are so important in rheumatology. And I uh, sort of not cringe, but it, it makes me uneasy when I see uh, a trainee examining a hand, for example, and not being sort of careful and meticulous about examining each joint and each tendon, um, for example. So I think we've, we've come to rely much more on things like ultrasound, MRIs, which are terrifically informative, no question. But along with that, it's like the cardiologist's use of the stethoscope, you know. No, let's just do an echo. Yes, you'll learn more probably, but somehow, maybe it's uh, my, I'm the old fogey, really, the genuine old fogey. I would like to see people be able to really meticulously do uh, physical examination of the musculoskeletal system. Again, that reflects my training, Jim Cassidy, regarded each joint as being important. And there was no joint went unexamined when he saw a job. And I, I still feel that's very important. And I don't see that being emphasized perhaps as much as I think it should be. But to take Ron's point, there's so much else now required by training programs like set up by the Royal College that has to be included. You know, there's only so many hours in the day. And uh, even if you work... 12 hours a day and are on call every other night, you're still not going to be able to accomplish it all. You only worked five days a week, is that what you're saying? <laughs> uh, good boss. <laughs> I think you get the sense, and maybe it's more in the adult programs, that a lot of the care of arthritis is done by using patient-reported outcomes, and uh, charts and CDI and you know, all the other measures. There's something to putting your hands on the patient and getting it. Really important feel. I think the patients appreciate that too. I think they're glad to know you can you listen to them and their pain scores and their functional scores and all the other patient reported outcomes. I think the physical examination is critically important. Abraham Verghese, I don't know if you know him, who's uh, not only a novelist but a physician who's now at Stanford, writes a lot about this. He has a fantastic TED talk that I urge people to listen to about putting your hands on a patient, even if it's only for a minute or two and the, the importance that that transmits in care. Thank you both for uh, those wise words. What do you think is coming in rheumatology? What does the future look like for us? Ron, we'll start with you. Sure. So I think the, the revolution in uh, all the omics, the way we look after patients, metabolomics, proteomics, genomics, transcriptomics, the microbiome, putting all these uh, together in Venn diagrams and coming up with real personalized medicine approach, precision medicine approach to care, understanding the right drug for the right patient, who's going to get the complications. I don't think we're there yet. There's some fantastic research initiatives underway, the UCAN initiative with uh, Canadians and uh, people in in the Netherlands, collecting tons of data, which will lead to important findings and applications to patients. I think the immunologic revolution, understanding pathways, will allow us to uh, use medications properly. And as I said before, overlap of specialties. What do you think that's going to look like? Do you think that um, 
we just need to extend training and you do your rheumatology training and then you complete an immunology training, do you think the programs are going to start meshing or combining in a different way? That's what I think is going to happen. I think you uh, you may decide early on which pathway you want to become as a rheumatologist. Take autoinflammation, for, for example. You can build your whole career around that. And you don't necessarily have to go through the well-defined criteria in the Blue Book for the Royal College Training Program. You, know, that may not, you may not need all those elements to become an expert in autoinflammation. You have to spend time in genetics. You have to spend time in immunology. And now we, many places are developing, for instance, these immune dysregulation clinics, right, overlapping uh, subspecialties that I think uh, is going to be part of the future of care as well. Ross, what about you? What do you see coming down the pipeline? I think uh, Ron has put it very well. Uh, if we go way back to the beginning of pediatric rheumatology, there was a great need, I think, to separate pediatric rheumatology from adult rheumatology, not because uh, adult rheumatology wasn't good, but because in order to develop any kind of expertise in pedroom, we had to be independent. And so that, that was sort of my orientation when I began my training. Uh, way back then, there were at, at the American College of Rheumatology meeting in Seattle in 1968, I think, there were 12 pediatric rheumatologists, including two trainees. I've, I was one of them. That was it. So from that, there emerged uh, sort of an independent ped room training program and discipline. I think it was necessary. We're probably now at the stage where we should combine our efforts with adult room and with other disciplines, particularly immunology and genetics, where the big advances in basic science knowledge are occurring. Um, we see that to some extent in transition programs where our kids who are no longer kids are graduated into adult fields. And this is still a challenge and doesn't always happen uh, as effectively as it should. Um, the uh, advances are going to come from the lab. When we understand the inflammatory pathways, it's almost like a given. If you can say, well, this is the molecule that's the problem here, then some fancy scientist or pharmaceutical company can make an antibody or a blocker uh, for that. And we've seen that happen in, in diseases like systemic onset JIA, where uh, blocking IL-1 and IL-6, the TNF-alpha blockers didn't do a thing, really. But when people figured out, ah, IL-6 levels are really high in these kids, okay, let's block IL-6, it made all the difference. So that the blending of the basic sciences, particularly uh, in um, immunology and genetics, is going to make a big difference. And I will never live to see it, but I certainly hope that with that kind of involvement, we will be able to pick out the child who's got the potential for having one of these rheumatic diseases and intervene to prevent it from happening. I think this is uh, its decades away, I'm sure, but I think it's going to happen. Before there was a formal pediatric rheumatology service, who took care of rheumatology patients? There were th at least three people in Canada, pediatricians, who really provided uh, excellent care for children, predominantly with chronic arthritis, way back in the 60s. There was Jean Daval in Quebec, Rob Hill in Vancouver, and uh, Jim Boone in 
in Toronto and in London, I think, at various times. And they, uh, they were not trained as pediatric rheumatologists, but they saw a need and said, okay, uh, I'll, I'll do this. And uh, certainly when I came to Vancouver, Rob Hill had been doing PEDMU for 10 years probably uh, and did it because he saw the need and somebody had to really pr provide help for these kids. Uh, those really were the pioneer people uh, in this country who were focusing on pediatric rheumatology. Can I add a couple of names to that? Absolutely. Um, in Montreal, there was a lady named Hannah Strachinsky. And I talked about a patient I saw that led me into rheumatology, but I, I saw that patient while I was doing a rotation in home care. And Hannah ran the home care service. And the home care service was responsible for hemophilia and thalassemia. Because patients with hemophilia got arthritis, she was also responsible for arthritis. And so I got to see some arthritis cases with Hannah. Mark Greenberg, who is a pediatric oncologist, did pediatric rheumatology at SickKids after Jim Boone moved to London. And the last person who I want to pay tribute to is Abe Shore. So Abe trained in pediatrics at SickKids and then did immunology and decided to become a pediatric rheumatologist. He went to London and worked with Barbara Ansel, probably the doyen of pediatric rheumatology, came back to Toronto and he wanted to establish his own pediatric rheumatology service. And without getting into the, uh, the deep war wounds, the immunology team at the time did not want there to be a rheumatology service. And so Abe got a, a tiny office in the basement and a tiny clinic space and ended up having to really build this program at the rehab hospital and at the Wellesley Hospital, an adult center. Uh, Abe was Canada's first Royal College certified pediatric rheumatologist. Abe had grants from the NCI and from the MRC and the Arthritis Society. Ended up, when we became our own service, joining us in, uh, to build a larger division of rheumatology at SickKids. And tragically, uh, Abe died in uh, 1991. And to honor his memory, we have established the Abe Shore Annual Lecture in Pediatric Rheumatology that rotates across the country. Thank you both so much for, for chatting with me today. That was really great. Pleasure. Thanks very much, Dan. Dr. Ron Laxer and Dr. Ross Petty are giants in the field of pediatric rheumatology, and I'm so glad we had a chance to hear just a few of their many words of wisdom. They have both forgotten more about rheumatology than certainly I will ever know. Canadian rheumatology is in their debt. That's it for this episode of Around the Room, the Canadian Rheumatology Association podcast. We are produced by David McGuffin, Dr. Dax Rumsey, Kevin Bagenoth, and Aaron Fontwell. We would like to give a special thanks to the Communications Committee and the staff of the CRA for their hard work. If you enjoyed your time with us, please give us a rating and subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. You can also share this podcast with your colleagues and spread the word on social media. I'm Daniel Ennis. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time.